Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Grace. What is it? You say, I know a a girl named Grace. Yeah, but what does it mean? Grace is unmerited favor. It's mercy that you don't deserve. Grace is like when you get pulled over for doing 80 in a school zone. You guys know school's back in session, right? It means you got to slow down in in those school zones. Grace is sort of like when you get pulled over for doing 80 in the school zone. You, you deserve a ticket at least, right, if not worse. And yet grace would be, as you stood before the judge, he lets you go. He shows grace upon you. Or someone else stands up, better yet, and takes the penalty for you. That would be a better picture of what God's grace is like. God's grace is amazing. It's amazing. Perhaps you've heard the familiar hymn, Amazing Grace. First stanza of that goes something like this, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Such familiar words, such a a moving melody, But I wonder, do these words describe your personal experience with God? Well, before we dive into that topic here just a little bit, why don't we pause for one more word of prayer. Father, we come before you, Lord, as we discuss your amazing grace. Lord, we just acknowledge, Lord, how much we need your help. Uh, Lord, we are like blind men and women, Lord. We need your help to see, and Lord, It's as if we're deaf, Lord. We we need your help to hear what it is you are speaking to us through your word. We ask for your help now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to talk briefly this morning about what makes God's grace so amazing. And I just have three simple points about that. First one here, God's grace is amazing, first of all, because... It's so undeserved. It's so undeserved. The first phrase of that hymn, Amazing Grace, I think is key to understanding what grace is. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Grace is not truly understood unless you understand that you don't deserve it. If you look up wretch in a dictionary, it'll give you a definition, something like this, a despicable or contemptible person. Now, the guy who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, his name was John Newton. He had come to a place in his life where he realized that before God, he was a a wretched sinner. He realized that. And if you know anything about John Newton's life, then you probably would agree with him. You see, John Newton, he actually captained 
a slaver boat. He was the captain of, of a boat that would literally give sails to the despicable African slave trade of the 18th century. And, and that means that John Newton was directly involved in the ruining of countless lives, uprooting people, men and women and children from their lives in their home country and taking them to another country where they would live in bondage the rest of their life. And so you and I, we, we look at this and we're inclined to agree with John Newton. We say, wow, that's, that's pretty bad. Right? I, I can see why you would write that. I mean, you're, you are a wretch before God and before mankind. You were you know, a slave trader. And after many, many years in, in that hardened condition, John Newton met Jesus Christ. His life was dramatically turned around. He experienced the forgiveness and grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he didn't deserve it. And he knew it, right? So he penned the, the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. In fact, at the age of 82, due to poor health and a, a failing memory, John Newton was encouraged to, uh, to retire. And this is how he responded to that. He says, you know what? My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. So he continued to preach the gospel of grace. You know, the problem is we can look at a person like John Newton and we can, we can say, you know what, that makes sense, that grace would be amazing to him. But we often fail to see that before a holy God, we are just as wretched as John Newton. Right? We often fail to see that. Jesus said in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, he was speaking to a group of people who were unamazed by God's grace. He said, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pity, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Right? This is capturing a, a bigger truth in the Bible, Romans 3.23, that says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This means that we've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. The standard that God sets is absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. Never having thought, said, or done anything that's wrong. Never doing a deed that displeases God. Deeper than that, never thinking a thought that displeases God. Deeper than that, never having in our hearts some desire that is displeasing to God. That's the standard that God requires. And so here's a, a spiritual exercise that you can do to grow in your awareness of this, of this biblical truth, that you are a sinner before God. This is a, a really helpful spiritual exercise. Okay, I'm going to give you two passages of Scripture. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 17, and Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48. Let me encourage you to, to write those down. And this week, pull out your Bible and, and read those passages. If you don't have a Bible, then Google it. 
you can actually Google passages of Scripture and keep it on a tab uh, in your browser, in your phone, and, and just keep it there. And let me encourage you to read these two passages of Scripture because here, here's what they are. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 17, contains the Ten Commandments. Contains the Ten Commandments, which is generally recognized as sort of a summary of all that God requires. Do we know the Ten Commandments anymore? I don't know, right? Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 17, details the Ten Commandments. And if it's overwhelming to you to read this many verses, then let me just encourage you, pick one of the Ten Commandments, right? And just sit down with it and read it and try to understand it and think about how it applies to your life. And then Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48. This is from a... a, a larger sermon that Jesus preaches called the Sermon on the Mount. And these verses in particular are basically a commentary on about half of the Ten Commandments. So taken together, these two passages are worthy of your reflection. They're worthy of your your meditation and, and thinking, you know, trying to understand what is it exactly that God has asked me to, to be and to do. So take these two passages, Exodus 20, Matthew chapter 5, read it, meditate on it, and let me challenge you to pray just a simple prayer like this. Lord, help me to understand your commandments. Reveal to me their significance in my life. Right? Just a simple prayer. Pray that every day. Read God's commands every day. Try to understand how it applies to your life. I dare you to do it. I dare you to do it. Or if you rather pray Scripture itself, a prayer that I pray regularly is Psalm 25.4. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. It's a wonderful prayer. How can you know the way, what God has required of you and what God thinks of you if you don't even know what he's asked of you? Right? Make yourself aware of what God is asking of you. And I can guarantee you, as you do that, here's what's going to happen. We are used to, in our life, to comparing ourselves to other people, right? We, we, we often, whenever we're feeling particularly bad about ourselves, all we have to do is look down the totem pole at someone who's worse than us and say, well, I, you know, I know I, I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect, but look at that guy, right? That's what we tend to do. We, we, as sinners, tend to compare ourselves with sinners. And what the Bible encourages us to do is not to do that, but to instead compare ourselves to God, Right? When, by reading God's commandments and, and understanding what he has asked you to do and who he is, you begin to realize, man, when I compare myself to God, I'm a lot like John Newton. Right? I'm actually quite wretched. This summer I was at my sister's house in North Carolina visiting with her and her family for a few days. And I spotted this book on her shelf, and I pulled it off, and I was reading it. It's called Theology, which is sort of a play on the word theology, which is the study of God. And it caught my eye because of all the, all the colorful illustrations. It's actually a kid's book that's designed to teach some pretty complex truths to little minds, right, to children. And uh, as a communicator of theological truths, this caught my eye because I'm always looking for a, a way to explain theology to someone, to explain the things of God to someone in a way that is simple and makes sense. 
And I was flipping through this book, and I came across this picture. Can you see that? Yeah, okay. I mean, wouldn't that catch your eye a little bit? You'd wonder, man, what is th- what's that about, right? It's ice cream with some worms sticking out of it. I said, I've got to know what they're talking about here. So I, I read this. Imagine you're going to an ice cream parlor on a hot day to buy an ice cream cone. The hardest part is trying to decide which flavor to get. Some people love chocolate and will only choose ice cream with chocolate in it. Others enjoy big chewy chunks of candy in their ice cream. But what if you, want an ice cream, what if you went into an ice cream shop and none of the flavors had any appeal? Imagine flavors like Stinky Sneaker and Mildew Swirl and Earthworm Chunk. Remember, this is a kid's book, okay? Kid's book. You would most likely leave the store without getting anything. We choose ice cream that tastes good. But when God chose us to be part of his family, we were yucky, spoiled sinners. Not one of us was good. God didn't choose us because, we, because he needed us or because we had some special quality. God chose us while we were still sinners just because he decided to love us. Some deep truth, right? Contained, packaged in a way that anyone can understand. God doesn't choose to show us his grace because we are his favorite flavor, right? God doesn't look out over the earth and say, wow, look at that one. I'm going to choose that one. Right? He doesn't do that. God, in a sense, walked into the ice cream shop, if you will, and all the flavors were nasty. That's what Romans 3.23 says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God looks out and he says, everyone has fallen short. Everyone. There's no flavor here that I would choose. But instead of walking out in disgust, you know what God does? He he chooses by his grace to save wretched, nasty sinners like John Newton, slave trader, like me, and maybe like you. begin to understand. If you want to understand what makes grace so amazing, you have to first understand that you're wretched before God. Otherwise, amazing grace? Why why is it so amazing? Why do I need God's grace? I'm fine. I'm pretty good, right? But when you understand that before a holy God, you are a sinner in need of being saved, then, then and only then can grace begin to become amazing to you. If, great, if the grace of God is inc- inconsequential to your life, if it's inconsequential to your life, then if it has no meaning for your day-to-day existence, then maybe you don't yet see just how much you need it. Secondly here, God's grace is amazing because it's free and costly. Because it's free and costly. Those are two words that usually you don't see side by side, right? (laughs) The other day I was sitting at Starbucks working on my iPad when suddenly the barista announced quite loudly, if anyone wants to try this fancy drink, I don't remember what the name of the drink was, 
here, you could just have it. And she slid it across the counter. And I'm sitting there. I've even got headphones in. I could hear her. And I look up. And I, ha- I actually had just sat down, and uh, I had bought myself just a plain black cup of coffee, right? Nothing, no fancy frills, no nothing. Cheap, right? I look up, and here's this fancy drink that I probably would never buy on my own. And, uh, you know, I, I realized that they had made this drink for someone in the drive-thru, and they'd messed it up somehow, and now they're offering it to just whoever wants it. You know, it's an announcement. If you want the drink, here it is, right? And I, here's what I do. I lift up my head, and I, I kind of look around. I'm expecting sort of there to be a, a mad dash. Like, you want to dash up there, but you're an adult, so you don't want to do it, you know, in a way that looks desperate. So you kind of look up. I'm looking around, and I kid you not, not a single person looked up from their laptops, from their conversations. And so I lock eyes with the barista, and she locks eyes with me, and she's kind of like, have at it, you know? So I come up, I get my completely fancy drink that I really enjoyed, and uh, it made my day, right? I had gotten something for free. That almost never happens to me. I got something for free. And even though that cup of coffee was more costly than probably I would ever have paid for, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that costly of a gift, was it? I mean, it was something that if I hadn't drank it, they would have just dumped it down the drain. Well, when we think about the gift of salvation, and that's what it is, it's a gift. God's gift of salvation is both free and it's costly. In contrast to my experience there, it is something that God gives you absolutely free. But it's not just some throwaway, something that's going to get dumped down the drain, right? It is of supreme value and worth. It costs God everything. God gave his beloved son to suffer and die the death that wretched sinners deserve. It cost him everything. I'm, a, I'm a, a father of two sons, and I can tell you, I would give you anything. I'd give you my house. I'd give you my car. I'd give you my wallet. I'll give you my phone. I'll give you the clothes off my back before I give you one of my sons. My sons, to me, are of inestimable value, right? And if you're a parent, you could echo that sentiment. God is a father, and he gave us his son to suffer and die for us. He gave us his best, the most costly thing. And you would think, oh, he gave us the most costly thing, and now he's going to say, you better earn it, right? That was the blood of my son. Let's see you shape up. Is that what he does? No, no. He offers us his son freely, the most costly gift in the world, and he gives it to us as a gift. Perhaps you've heard the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's contained right in there, the the. The gift is supremely costly. It's God's only beloved son, and yet it's completely free. Whosoever will, 
shall not perish, but have eternal life. The combination of the fact that God's grace is of surpassing worth and also completely free will cause your heart to shout, Amazing grace! That's what causes your heart to sing it and to mean it because you realize, I didn't deserve it, and it's completely free, and it's of inestimable value. God's grace is amazing because it's so undeserved. It's free and costly. And then thirdly and finally... Because it's so powerful. It's so powerful. The grace of God is powerful enough to save. It's also powerful enough to transform your life. Before we experience God's love through His grace, obeying God and doing the things that God commands seem burdensome to us. Before we receive the grace of God, obeying God is burdensome, isn't it? You think, I don't want to obey what God says. I want to do what I want to do. There's lacking the, the heart desire to, to obey God. We lose that because of sin. Sin causes us to not want to obey God. And the, the, the fact of the matter is, the, the truth of it is, we were, if we were absolutely honest with ourselves here this morning, the truth is, we love our sin, don't we? We love the, the pleasures of our sin. We love it. And so what has the power to free us from sin? Have you ever been involved in, a, caught up in a sin in your life that, you, in a way, you enjoy it, there's a pleasure to it, but in another way, you feel enslaved to it? You say, I wish if, if I could stop, I would, but... I can't. I seem to love it. Right? In the moment when I'm doing it, I, I, I must love it because I keep doing it. That's happened in my life. What has the power to free me from that love of sin? What has the power to do that? You know, you can motivate people in all sorts of ways. You can guilt trip them. As it turns out, guilt is a, a lousy motivator. You can scare them into obeying God, trying to obey God, but over time I've found that wears off. What has the power to break the allure of sin in our life? There's a 19th century Scottish minister by the name of Thomas Chalmers, and he once spoke of that power that's strong enough to displace our love for sin with a greater love. I have it up here somewhere. Thomas Chalmers said this, that it takes the expulsive power of a new affection. <clears throat> I asked my family this morning, do you you think people will know what the word expulsive means? And they said no. So let me explain that. Expulsive means to expel something, right? What has the, the power to expel or to throw out? Our sin. It's the power of a new and greater affection for Christ. Love, as it turns out, is the greatest motivator on the face of the planet. Love. 
God's love for you has the power to drive out your love for your sin when you understand amazing grace. Listen as I read a fellow by the name Brian Chapel. He illustrates this point in sort of a mundane way, but it, it illustrates the point so well. He said, for many years our family had, has loved vacations at a cabin in the woods. We love the cabin in every season, but as winter approaches, we must drain water out of all the plumbing systems, l- lest freezing water burst the pipes. We shut off the water main and open all the drain valves. We reverse the process in the spring, closing drain valves to let the water fill the systems. Now the hot water tank requires a different process. As we refill the tank, we open a valve at its top, allowing inflowing water to drive out the air that occupied the space during the winter. In a similar way, when the love of Christ fills our heart, we drive out the air in which sin has thrived when our hearts have been cold to him. Love for Christ displaces love for sin and denies it the spiritual oxygen it requires to, to occupy our hearts. It's like that. The love of Christ comes into your heart and it drives out the love of sin and suddenly you realize you've been changed. You have been changed by a greater affection, a greater love, greater than anything else this world has to offer. You know, it says this in the Word of God. The Apostle Paul tried to describe this in this way. 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says it's the love of Christ that controls us. It's the love of Christ. And in John 14.15, Jesus said this. He said, it's if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? It's the secret, is to love. Love is the secret. And see, people, they often mix up this order and therefore misunderstand the amazing grace of God. We think, I better drive this sin out of my life so that God will love me, so that God will show grace to me, or I better shape up, right? I better, I better stop this or God's not going to love me. We mix it up. Because, you know why? Because every other relationship that you have is like that in, in this life, isn't it? Everything from school, getting grades in school, to every relationship you've ever had, the way you perform dictates whether or not someone is going to love you or, or reward you for what you're doing. But God is not like that. It's actually the exact opposite. It's so counterintuitive. The gospel tells us that that we are to first receive God's love as a pure act of grace, as a gift. And then and only then will you find within yourself a new love for God as he transforms you from the inside out, as he displaces your old love for your sin. God's grace is powerful to save you from the wrath of God because of your sin, and it's also the most powerful force on earth to transform you from the inside out, and to give you new affections. 1 John 4.19 says this, we love because he first loved us. Get the order right. Get the order right. God's grace is amazing because one, it's so undeserved. Two, it's free and costly. And three, 
It's so, so powerful. And I'm here to tell you, to announce to you this morning that it's yours. God's grace is yours by faith. All you need to do, as it turns out, according to Scripture, is ask for it. All you need to do is ask God for His grace. Ask Him for His forgiveness. And then you too can sing from the heart, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. I was blind, but now I see. You can sing it from the heart. You know, I I love how God's grace is really going to be the theme that, the, of our praises of him for all eternity, right? And as you, if you were to read through our hymn book and just read through, you know, the, the lyrics of the hymns that we sing, oftentimes you'll notice that the last verse of a hymn is looking forward to that day when we're in heaven and we're singing God's praises for all eternity. And Amazing Grace is no different from that than the, the very last verse. It pictures us in heaven doing that. But the, one of the things I love about Amazing Grace the last verse of Amazing Grace, is how it looks forward, not just to heaven, but it looks forward to 10,000 years after we've been in heaven for, for many, many years. Right? A lot of people think heaven's going to be boring. It's not going to be boring. It's not going to be some unending church service with a guy like me droning on and on. It's not going to be like that, okay? It's going to be the most wonderful thing you can ever imagine. And one of the greatest joys of those who truly sing from the heart, amazing grace is going to be singing about God's grace for all eternity. And the, the last, as I said, stanza of amazing grace says this, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. The, the amazing thing about, the last amazing thing that I'll tell you about God's amazing grace is that it becomes more amazing the more you know him. Because the more you know him, the more you know yourself, you know how wretched you are. The closer you get to God, the more you see, wow, this grace was more amazing than I even thought at the first. And you sing it even more vehemently. And so let me invite you into these praises this morning. Won't you accept God's amazing grace into your life as a gift? It'll forever change your life. Don't be like the people at Starbucks who heard the announcement of a free gift and they didn't even look up. That's maybe not that big of a deal when you're turning down a cup of coffee and you've already got one sitting on your table. But don't miss this announcement. What's being offered to you from God's word today is nothing less than the salvation of your soul. It's too good not to look up. It's too good not to receive by faith. Let me pray for you. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, we readily admit, all of us here, Lord, who believe in you, we readily admit, God, that we are sinners. We're not here to preach our our own name or to puff ourselves up, God, or to look good. Or we are, are simply sinners saved by your grace. All the glory to you, Father. All the glory, all the honor, all the majesty, all the might be to your name. Father, I pray that you would encourage your saints today, Lord, your, your 
people who are sitting here in, in this church, Lord, being reminded of their salvation, God, may they trust today, not in their own performance, their own stumblings here and there, God, but may they trust in the amazing grace displayed for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we boast not in ourselves, but may we boast in the, the cross of Jesus Christ. He's the reason why we are saved. He's the reason why we have a hope of, of heaven with you. Father, we give you all the praise, all the glory together. And Father, I pray for those who are here, Lord, who have never received your costly yet free gift of salvation. God, I pray that today would be the day. Lord, open up hearts. Let blind eyes see. Let deaf ears hear. Lord, unless you call, they won't come. So Father, I, I pray, Lord, that you would draw people into your kingdom. Father, I pray now as we kind of pivot here to our, the next stage of our service and begin to put the gospel on display through baptism, God, I pray that the gospel would be clear through that as well. And I pray that you would strengthen each one who comes to give their testimony. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.